Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Halloween 2, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Charles Cyphers, and Lance Guest. Written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and directed by Rick Rosenthal. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Happy Halloween, Matt. Happy Halloween, Jesse. Happy <laughs> Halloween, Rye Nation. Excellent. We are going to be wrapping up our slasher Terrible Twos cast with a look at Halloween 2 from 1981, the golden year of the slasher film. Indeed. Uh, but uh, before we do, we're going to try and have some more of this uh, Weller's. I was going to say top off. I don't know if we're going to finish that bottle today. We might have a little left over. Yeah, I'm not, no. We'll see how the episode goes. But cheers. Cheers. Extra special cheers to Mr. Sean Connery. Amen who passed this morning. Celebrate him in a fantastic way. What a great run. 90 years. Godspeed to you, brother. Great, great characters that he played. So this is to you. Yep. Mm, That's good. Yep. Excellent. Well, let's get this thing started with our flight question. Okay, so Halloween 2, 1981, a direct continuation sequel from the classic 1978 Halloween. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, how that plays, you know, these direct continuation sequels. So I guess the flight question this week is, what's our top three sequels that took an unexpected route or a strange turn once they got to part two. So we've covered bad sequels before, bad threequels, bad this, bad that. So I didn't necessarily go with like the worst, but I went with ones that more that I was looking forward to. And I was just like, yeah, maybe that wasn't the right direction to take that. So let's do how we do three, three. What do you got for number three? Checking in at number three, Blues Brothers 2000. Mm. Spun out of a skit on Saturday Night Live that I'm not sure had a lot of legs to begin with anyway. I think it took a lot of effort to make that into a fully fleshed out feature. Now take that same scenario and remove John Belushi from it. Not that John Goodman is not a fine actor in his own right. The guy's awesome Mm -hmm. and certainly not a stranger to Saturday Night Live either. That's right. Where that should have gone was acknowledging John John Pelushi's death in that mm-hmm. and the pursuit thereof after he dies. And instead they just reheated it and went essentially kind of down the same road in a space that I don't think had enough legs to be a movie, much less reheated without the main star. I, I'm not even going to say it's terrible. It's not terrible. Well, maybe this is any indication just wrong-headed. You. I've never seen it, so. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lot of people... The Blues Brothers is an interesting series, isn't it? Yeah. It holds this place, I think, in Pantheon comedy of so important, and it's not that good. It's That, that initial movie sucks. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I hate it, but 
I kind of think, like, what's the longevity of something like that? I don't know if you could do multiple entries in something like that. Right. So good choice. <laughs> I had forgotten that was even a movie. I mean, if that's about like the blues, then I think this story that that should have been mm-hmm. was in an urn with ashes, the surviving Dan Aykroyd character mm-hmm. takes him on the journey of the blues across the United States oh, that'd be good. to Graceland and other, like that's the story. Yeah. Celebrating what his brother didn't get to see while in the mortal plane. Instead you get what you get in that film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So there's my number three. Blues Brothers 2000. Excellent. Okay. Yours. Uh, number three. Um, I don't think anyone's going to argue that um, uh, one of the most pleasant surprises I think in a film was actually back in 2003 and with that being Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> I don't know what people kind of thought to expect from what they're adapting a, a theme park ride into a movie, but you went and saw that first and you're like, oh, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, great characterization. We had never seen a pirate film quite like that before. It was fun, swashbuckling action. Uh, literally. So you got to admit that for the second one, like a lot of people were looking forward to it, especially me. I was like, I can't wait to see more of that world. And Matt, I can't tell you like how disappointed I was watching dead man's chest in the theater. First of all, it's like 30 minutes longer than the first one. And it kind of doesn't know where it wants to take the, the lore that they set up in the first one so well. And, you know, they kill off Jack at the end and just to bring him back in the in the subsequent one. But it was to me, that movie's extremely boring for its runtime and nowhere near as fun. So I just thought that was an odd place to take the second one of what well, people were very much. And people went to see that movie made a lot of money. But, man, I was kind of off off the bandwagon at that point. I went to see three and it did not get much better. So yeah, that series just spiraled down mm-hmm. from that point, didn't it? Mm-hmm. I think both those two entries are are unique in that a movie was spun out of a premise that I don't think ever had the intentions of being a film, whether it be the Blues Brothers and a skit on SNL yep. or an amusement park ride. Mm-hmm. One of those has certainly more legs than the other. Yeah, Pirates have infinitely more possibilities than mm-hmm. you know the Blues Brothers. But yeah, that second film, to craft what you did in the first one and set up, it's funny, I think we're going to have this conversation throughout the podcast today too about mm. the proper film, right? Mm-hmm. But to set up what you did in the initial and then to go where you did and then kill your your prize-winning pig at the end. Just to know he's coming back anyway. Of course. Yeah. You, like you're just dicking around and wasting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah. Number two. Gremlins 2. <laughs> Could easily be in worse sequels of all time. But for those of you that haven't seen the Key and Pills uh, oh my God. S- uh, skit with... um. The executive pitch meeting of Gremlins 2. Gotta see it. It's borderline comedic genius. It is. <laughs> okay, so I think there's a lot of potential with that. Mm-hmm. And pretty much the cast agreed to come back. I have to tell you, out of sort of a sick sense of humor, I revisited the original maybe in the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. We sat down and me and my daughter watched it. She was bored to tears. Mm-hmm. It hasn't aged well. So I will be frank and upfront about that. It's picking a little bit of low-hanging fruit here. The way that that film cho- chose or the decisions that it made were so irredeemably bad. Mm-hmm. That was set up to go any number of ways that didn't go the way that one chose to go. I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to break down the beats of it. It's 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 barely worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. I think they had a franchise that with those characters, the gremlins, yeah. 
an infinite number of possibilities of how you could use them. Why did the hell did they choose that way? I know. Okay, so that's, and also uh, just a terrible sequel. It got stupid really quick. Sure did. Interesting. Okay, oh, great choice. That's Thanks. that's a really good one. Gremlins 2 oh, just made I've, it on I think our I, podcast. I think oh I've seen it like once. Yeah. I own the first one. I, I like it. Probably, but I, I don't know. It's not one I always revisit. No. You know what I mean? Right. Number two, we've covered it on the podcast before. Matt, you knew you know I had to have a Spider-Man movie on here. Yeah. Um, but I'll be the first to admit, the Amazing Spider-Man 1, I actually think is fairly enjoyable. It's not terrible. I like seeing the lizard. And while I may not be on board with that version of Peter Parker, the Gwen Stacy stuff works very well. I think it's cast pretty well. So I was looking forward to seeing where they take this story. And then you get the Amazing Spider-Man 2, and yikes. It's a movie that wants to continue the relationship aspect, but it's also trying to set up like four other movies at the same time. And it's, just go listen to that episode. It's so busy, it's so convoluted, and altogether at the end, it's pretty stupid. It's pretty stupid. (laughs) So I thought about Spider-Man 3, but I don't know if that was, by then I was just like, yeah, I think they're a little fatigued with the Spider-Man by that point where it was a miss, but... I don't know if it missed as hard as like literally swinging for the fences in your second film, like trying to like the kitchen sink and the refrigerator and the stove Mm -hmm. to make a a franchise before you even get started. That's a big no, no. That's number two for me. It's a great choice. Okay. Number one, son of Kong. Ooh, classic made in the same year as the original (laughs) with a character that was really popular and beloved on screen. So let's take the second film and make it a way smaller version of King Kong. So it's just kind of like a big ape, really, or gorilla. And we'll try to spin something out of that. Now, you've removed all of the length Mm -hmm. and gravity and weight and power and immensity of the character on film and reduced that to, like, one-fifteenth of what its normal size was. (sighs) What? Are did, you, did Willis O'Brien even come back to do the stop motion for that one? I think so. Okay. Um, but done in the same year. So that it was rushed. But <clears throat> I'm not really sure that that is why they had to make him smaller. They mm-hmm. could have still rushed it and made Kong the same size. Yeah. But they chose to do an Andre the Giant size <laughs> King Kong son. Oh, man. I love your entries because they're either films I haven't seen, Blues Brothers, or films I've only seen once. And it really shows their replay value if I'm not going back to them. I don't think that movie's terrible. Yeah. But no one wants to see a movie about King Kong's son. Yeah. Especially when King Kong is still so fresh. Just do King Kong again. Especially with, like, uh, even, like, Godzilla's son once they introduce... Oh, jeez. Uh, um, I think his name's Manila. Or, or meat, 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 It has a name. I'm going to look it up here. Uh, Vanilla, such a boring character. We'll yeah. just name it Manila. Yeah. You have the same problem. You're like, I'm not here for this. I'm here for Godzilla. You've barely established what Kong is and what he can be, and you've already cha- chosen to go another route. Another one for me mm-hmm. was close. Okay. Honorable mention. Yeah. Is any of the subsequent Dracula films? Mm. Dracula's daughter. I don't even mind that. I like the brides in that. It just. Man, you blew it by doing him in. The next one, I think, Son of Dracula. I think Lon Chaney Jr. plays him in that one. Those are big misses. Mm-hmm. He never played the character ever again, other than uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It was the only other time he played Universal Dracula, which seems so strung like a, out on opioids. He was hard to cast at that point. I imagine so. Yeah, great choices. Thanks. What's your number one? I'm gonna hear number one for me. 
So, man, you, you had HBO growing up, so you were kind of like, if you had a, like, during the summer, if you had time, you'd have HBO on. And HBO had this thing where, like, once they got a hold of a movie, they would just play it to Cloak death. Cloak and Dagger. To death. Oh, my God. Rodney, <laughs> Dabney Coleman and Cloak and Dagger was on every day. And Henry Thomas. Long. Oh, my God. All the time. Yep. Uh, one of the ones that was on repeat rotation was Speed 2 Cruise oh, Control. jeez. Which as a kid, I was like, I was like, this is pretty, this is a good movie. This is a fun little action yarn, and Willem Dafoe's insane, and the leeches, and this Jason Patrick. I don't know who he is, but he's an okay action star, and I like the setting. But then, like a few years after that, I saw the first one, and I was like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> I was like, this is way better. Yeah. and then they ended up with that. Oh yeah, to take a. A plot mechanism of if your bus goes under 50, it blows up. It's literally like a single location that's in inevitable motion and you can't get off of it. That's genius. Mm -hmm. To a slow-moving nautical vessel, huge miss. Huge. And nothing against Jason Patrick. I love The Lost Boys, but Keanu wisely passed on a very poor idea for a sequel. Yeah, (laughs) right. uh, That has to be number. But that was one, like, I I loved Speed 2 as a kid just because it was on all the time. Always catching it on HBO, but it fails mightily in comparison to the original. Great choice. I didn't even consider that one. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Why would you, (laughs) again, back to the writing room, you know what really worked in Speed 1 is a bus with speed, highways, traffic, 50 miles an hour, can't go below. There's so many. You know what won't work? Underwater in a sub. Are really you, slow. Stupid. Are you kind of shocked that they've never like continued on with that series? Like in any other form? Or um, I actually have never thought about it until right now. Not even like a direct-to-DVD market. Like, yeah. I could see like Speed 3, Snowmobile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But no, yeah. they never they never no. attempted that again, even like a remake. So yeah, they're probably talking about it right now. Good choices. Excellent. Great choices. Uh, so yeah, let's jump right into Halloween 2 from 1981. Uh, Matt and I, uh, there's some openings up for some EMT paramedics. So we're going to see. We failed at uh, camp counseling. We failed at realtors. We're going to see if this venture fits us better. Um, hopefully that hospital there in Haddonfield is sparsely populated and we won't be busy so much. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> here we go. What's going on out here? Call the police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Who? Tell him he's still on the loose. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. And thus begins Donald Pleasance's Loomis at an 11 this entire movie. Right. Um, okay, so Halloween 2, 1981. Uh, one thing I do like about this film, just kind of right from the get-go, I like the addition of the the Mr. Sandman song. It's this very dreamlike quality, maybe because some people are literally sleeping through this movie. Mm. Um, but it does make it seem more surreal um, after the events of what happened in part one. But I love that we get a little bit of a recap of the end of the last one, and then we're right into what happens next the second he goes downstairs to see... That he's gone. It's you don't get a lot of direct continuation sequels in film. So this is um I like this. I do too. Picking up right where we left off is a great choice. Mm-hmm. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna make this seem like a really long night. Mm-hmm. Which it should because the characters are going through hell. Have you ever seen unrelated, but maybe a bit of a tease of what's c- coming, kind of. 
Uh, have you ever seen the Godfather saga like yeah. on TV mm-hmm. where they do it in sequential order mm-hmm. and it's all kind of pieced together? Yeah. Like I want someone to do that with this. I want someone to like just splice these two films together and give me a three hour version of Halloween. Wow. So we start with young Michael and then go to the dreamlike sequence in the mental institution. Sure, and yeah. then, uh, why not? It may as well incorporate all that television footage that they were forced to add to them. Um, mm-hmm. Just make it one long big movie. But you know, I find it I find it very interesting, and you know, Michael's shot out of the this room, and he leaves a wily e. coyote imprint on the grass down there. Yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> that was silly. He was right here. Look, you can see the track. <laughs> he Here's left his imprint imprint in the grass. Mm-hmm. Um, to that line, I've been trick or treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. Uh, to just kind of going around and looking for him. But this has always been the crux of why I think Halloween as a franchise, even when it's missing mightily, always works for me. And it's these shots of Michael and first-person POV walking through these. We don't we don't have these these kind of back alley, backyards, but like literally meandering through these neighborhoods, through these alleys, backyards. And that's miles and miles more terrifying for me than a campground setting or dreamland. Like when I first saw this and I shared with you, this was the first Halloween film I ever did see. Uh, I think I was in fourth grade and it was just happened to be on um, like USA or sci-fi. And so of course they're cutting all the good bits out, but I was there with like the remote and just watching this and it was really unnerving me. Uh, and I had nightmares for weeks after watching this, and I, I had no interest of revisiting any the original for that matter or any of the other sequels. But it was this one, and I think it was the setting. They do, they did such a good job of setting up suburban Americana, where it was like, man, this really could like he could be like hanging out in the backyards there. That's something that's always worked for me with this series. Sure, mm-hmm. if you don't want to be attacked by a shark, don't go in the water. If you don't want to get hacked to pieces at a summer camp, stay at home. Aha, there's the rub though, right? Mm-hmm. You live in some version of suburbia. Where are you going to go? Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I think that there's a lot of terror amongst what happens inside our neighbor's houses and everyday life too. All the time when people are interviewed on local news or what have you like, Oh, he was the next door neighbor. I never would have thought that they, yeah, exactly. it happens over and mm-hmm. over every time we just had dinner with them on Tuesday night. We had a barbecue, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that this is maybe happening in and through your backyards with the neighbors next door to you, there's no getting away from it. Mm-hmm. I also think what it really does is it allows, especially at the beginning of this film, Michael to lurk in the shadows of commonplaces that scene that you just said where Loomis or played where Loomis says, you don't know what death is. And then we get, I shot him six times and we're watching Michael's POV down the alley as mm-hmm. he sees Loomis yeah. in full freak out mode with the cop. I shot him in the heart. I shot him six times. Mm-hmm. Right. And Michael's just watching. Mm-hmm. Well, Loomis can't see him. Otherwise he would pursue him. Yeah. And we find out why later is he's watching these people hidden in the casting shadows of the buildings and the clothes on the clothesline and just the normal places that you and I see every day in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I love that because you can be anywhere. He goes into, I wish they kept it there. Oh yeah, me too. We'll get to the hospital because some of it does work for me, but um, he goes up into Mr. and Mrs. Elrod's 
uh, house here. Now, in the I'm going to bring up the novelization a little bit, which is is hard to find. It's like one of the they, they don't reprint novelizations like once they're out of print. So you get that chance to get them when they're, but like the opening of the novelization, if you ever wanted to like know the internal monologue of Sam Loomis as he's watching the, the Myers house and listening in the streets, like you, like you get trick or treaters coming to the Elrod's residence at the beginning and you kind of see the night unfold before the chaos starts. Um, but I've always liked this, this, this little part too, with the night of the living dead on TV or Harold, do you want most mayonnaise on your sandwich? And then, and then we cut to breaking news, which is something again, like uh, until uh, like Friday the Thirteenth Part Three or Four, you don't get like that news outlet that's like covering the events unfolding in real time, which I think makes the stakes a little greater. You get this breaking: police have made the shocking discovery in, in Haddonfield of three murdered teenagers, and they're looking for a mental patient that escaped last night. Like, there's some real weight to the seriousness of the situation. Um, and then he gets that knife and they do a good job of kind of showing him lurking in the background. Uh, does that, does that work for you? Like the kind of the media element at play here, kind of almost informing us of like what's taking place. Yeah. If the slaughter has just occurred, then certainly it's going to be covered. Now you might want, if we're going to be nitpicky, you probably say what time on Halloween night is all of this news breaking and are they doing a broadcast at 2am? Whatever. And we sort of brought that up. Like at some point it's curfew. Like when the kid is going to the hospital with the razor blade in his mouth, we're assuming from the apple that you pointed out that I didn't even recognize till you said it. Yeah, that's, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, you know, at some night, at some point, Halloween night becomes the day after morning, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And all of that space that we're playing with, I'm talking about time, I think works in this because the movie does try to present a feeling of length to the viewers. And what I mean by length is the moments that can happen rapidly in film, this draws out to make the whole process feel that much more torturous as an audience member. So you can relate to what they're going through as victims being stalked by this killer. Mm -hmm. So showing the news, uh, television cameras and all that to having it be on the radio to watching him go from out the window to the neighbor's house to get the knife. All of that makes a feeling similar to Gary Cooper and high noon, mm -hmm. a real time feel to it. Yeah. That's hard. And that's a hard thing to do in movies, especially it is because you're talking, I mean, if you take one and two together, we're talking under four hours, Oh, probably under maybe three, just over three, I think. So if you can take in just over three hours, what is gosh, 12 to 16 hours mm -hmm. and make it feel like real time. I think you've done a good job. And I'm going to also add to the genius in this. It's not the same director anymore either. Yep. So Rick Rosenthal is able to come along and carry out that piece of this story that creates real time longevity, thus adding to the torturous or arduous task mm -hmm. that everybody involved in this movie has engaged in except and even Michael to a certain extent. Michael is very plotting and calculated in this film, isn't yeah. he? Uh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Can I ask you a question before we go? Any, I want to ask you that oh. that very of the three. Okay. Michael, Jason, and Freddie. Mm -hmm. Is Michael the most strategic of the three? <laughs> Especially in this movie. Certainly. I mean, I mean, he has the wherewithal to uh, hook up an IV to a nurse and bleed her out on the floor. Like he's very plotting, which. 
I don't know if it works for his character because I think of Michael as like a person with like a six-year-old brain and he's like super regressed. So he's able to drive and do all these things, whatever. No, he's definitely the most cut. Freddie will just be like, ah, bitch. Um, and the jester, <laughs> the brute, and the st- the strategist. And then Jason's just pure brute. Right. He's just, if you're in his way, you're getting hacked. Mm-hmm. Um, here, Michael, like, yeah, he's kind of sneaky the way he's kind of going about some of his stuff. So that does, yeah, that, that's working for me. Uh, you brought up the scene where the, I guess the wife is making the sandwich for her husband who's yeah. passed out watching Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Michael sneaks in. Yeah. And then sneaks out, not being seen by her. Mm-hmm. Whether you believe that or not, it's not the point that I want to make. If you could do that in real time, what what plays for me in that is the deliberate choices he's making on who he chooses to do in. Yeah, because he passes on this old woman to immediately go to another house through essentially the same process, sneaking through the back door mm-hmm. and do in a bit more babysitter-esque like Laurie Strode Mm -hmm. character. It's almost like he's polishing his skills or refining them for the ultimate confrontation. Yeah, the masterpiece that he wants to show off in his den of animals that he slaughtered. I guess I can see that. I mean, it starts to work less for me in the first one. It's so good because he has been watching these women all day, walking down the street in their cars, following them. So there's a really great stalking nature. Uh, And then this one, he's right into like whoever comes in his path now is kind of like getting the knife. But not Mrs. Elrod, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't know if it works so, so well for me, but... um. I think it comes into the, the trap of the sequel. It's like, we got to have things happen. So we got to kind of, we can't be as, uh, uh, like, as refined as we were in the last one. Like, we have to have a body count. So we got to, like, you know, chocolate, you know how they say you got to have a scare every five pages or something like that. That That's kind of, it, it's meeting the scare quota in that regard. Um, I kind of like it better if it's just, I saw this girl. She came to my house in the last movie. I'm infatuated with her. She's not my sister, and I'm just going to follow her around all day until I can get close. You know what I mean? I do. I think you've hit one of the two key points Mm -hmm. with Michael's motivation. Yeah. Why does he choose Lori? Because what they're going to argue in this movie, I I think we're both going to beat up pretty good. Mm -hmm. And is it that he's after Lori, or is it Lori's relationship with Tommy? Yeah. Because Tommy is him. Just yep. mm-hmm. the younger version of him. And as you said, with the regressed, he stalled out at about that age. Tommy's oh, yeah. age in one with the pumpkin getting dropped and then the kid walking into or my, the, his friend Richie bumping into Michael in the school playground and then Michael walking, watching Tommy walk home. That's about the same age that he is when he does in his sister some years earlier to start the franchise, mm-hmm. right? It's got to be one of those two things. Yeah. And I think for me, we're going to play this out to the hilt later. Okay. If it's less about Lori and it's more about the reflection of himself in Lori as the mirror, that's the relationship she shares with Tommy. Yep. And her taking care of Tommy on Halloween night, the way that his sister didn't take care of him on Halloween night because she went upstairs with 15 second three pump Pete. <laughs> Sick. Right? 15 seconds. I'm literally, <laughs> took him that long just to get their shoes off. I know. 
I, I get that. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a different turn yeah. in about probably 30 minutes and talk about what, what ends up happening. Yeah. But like, I think we're both in the same space here, Jesse, with here's why we are interested in Michael because he's been so quiet, mm-hmm. literally doesn't speak at all in the first one. And there's so many questions posed starting to play it out here. I just don't like the way it plays out. Yeah. And when we get to Sam Hain, I'm going to set myself on fire. <laughs> we'll get to that too, won't we? Ooh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, what do you think of, I don't know if these things bother you as much as they bother me, but what do you think of, so Nick Castle played Michael Myers in the last film. And this one it's Dick Warlock, just a stunt man who actually was Kurt Russell stunt man on escape from New York. The same, this same year. Um, does Michael work for you in this one, the way he moves? Because to me, this one, Halloween 2, has always been robotic Michael. He's very stiff in the way he kind of plods from scene to scene, walking more intentionally slow. And if you never talk about like body movement like on, on this, other than Robocop with Peter Weller and the mm-hmm. first Halloween. And I think it's important when you play, uh, especially a silent character like this, the way you move. Um, yeah, well, you put it on a tee, but I'm going to give it back to you. Yeah. Tell everybody that hasn't or maybe hasn't listened what your favorite moment in Halloween one is. Yeah, it's it's when Laurie goes back to the the Doyle residence and as he plods across the street, it's very it's slow, but it's like he's walking like a regular guy too. Mm-hmm. It's there's a glide to his step. Um and this one is just it's so stiff and I'm just like I wish you'd shake your arms just a little bit, especially there's that scene when he's chasing Laurie down the stairs. And he's just kind of walking down them one at a time and just kind of looking straight ahead. Like, I wish he was kind of looking down as he's kind of going down. I don't know if the body movement works for me. Um, the rest of the rest of it's fine. And how he does in all the people he kills is, is totally fine. So I'm going to piggyback on that because I agree with you. My favorite part in one is when he stabs Bob on the door mm-hmm. and tilts his head like a dog who is um, interested in the treat you're about to give them. Yeah, yeah. That's not stiff. Mm-hmm. He's admiring in a state of awestruckedness his own work. And that little tilt where he brings his right ear to his right shoulder and looks like, hmm, how about this? Yeah. Is literally flexibility. Mm-hmm. They do that same sequence, that same idea in the second film. Yeah. It's when he stabs the nurse the in the temple. Mm-hmm. And he makes this, uh, this exact same thing. So... I think Rick Rosenthal is acknowledging the fine work that Carpenter did in number one for that particular scene and literally redoing it on screen, but there's not the fluidity yeah. that the original has Nick Castle compared to this. What's this, what's this new guy's name? Uh, Dick Warlock. Dick Warlock's movement. Mm-hmm. They're trying. Yeah. So that's a long answer. And I think we both agree the body language of Michael doesn't work in this, but you, you hit it. Body language is really important to Michael, isn't it? Because he doesn't speak. I think body language is important in horror. I mean, look at Boris Karloff. Look at how he moves as Frankenstein. Another, until you get to Bride and he talks, which is also genius, how he goes about that. But in the first one, he's very, remember the scene in Frankenstein when he is introduced and he backs into the room and then turns. And then we get like a triple close up to him. He it's it's all how this looks. It's all oh the the sun. Like you have to move a certain way, and you, when you're so stiff, it's there's less personality there. So that's the only thing that kills it for me. This is the same mask from the last one. You said, "Are you sure?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm sure." Uh, so you know, Deborah Hill kept it in her room. She was 
but she was a smoker, so it, it took some work. And that latex doesn't last. Sure. It starts to break down over time. So in a smoke-filled bedroom, yeah, it's going to take on a more blondish, brownish kind of look to it. And Dick Warlock has a different facial structure to these aren't fitted masks. It was a mask bought on Hollywood Boulevard in some Halloween shop. So it's going to fit this guy differently, too. But it's the same mask. And going forward, it's going to be a mask fiasco. <laughs> A miasco? A mouse, a mask gate, <laughs> so to speak. I think Rick Rosenthal has a a hard job on his hand here. He's got to make a literal follow-up to the original. So this film stylistically has to kind of look like how the original looked too. He brought back the original cinematographer, Dean Cundy, and Carpenter's back with the script, and he's even doing the music again. Um, but as Carpenter has said on numerous occasions, I'm just going to read what he, what he said here. So Carpenter wrote this script with a six-pack of Budweiser every night, and he continually asked himself, what the fuck am I doing? Because he just couldn't see. He's like, the story, to me, is done. Whether you want to continue or not is one thing, but I don't know how to give any more motivation and continuance onto what's going to happen next. Uh, and I don't blame him, you know what I mean? Especially when I talked about it, I was like, Matt Carpenter must have been so busy at this time. He had just done The Fog. Rattle was, it off. Yeah, tell He him. was doing The Fog the prior year. He had was writing this and doing Escape from New York in this year and probably busily into prepping The Thing yeah. and Halloween 3 in the subsequent year. So Busy. The guy's busy, so I don't blame him for not like going all in on this idea. I mean, you know, we write, and when if, if you get to something, like we'd be so lucky to have a film like Halloween in our repertoire, no but... To come back for something when now you have Carpenter has what I like to call like the get out of jail free card or carte blanche right now at this time. I can make any film I want right mm-hmm. now because of Halloween. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing the second Halloween. You know what I mean? Right. I would I like I want to do this high concept movie set in New York City as a prison. Man, you know how much I love the thing. I have a chance to remake that. I want to do that instead. Yeah. Instead, they're like, no, John, you have to come and write this thing so i can see how tedious it would be and by the time you get to 81 his film is tame in comparison to what's come i mean we've had friday the 13th and everything's gorier and bloodier so this film has to echo that to that the kills in this scene are above and beyond anything in the original Mm -hmm. and i think through five and now six films we're talking about Nightmare 1 and 2, Friday 1 and 2, and now Halloween 1 and 2. I think this is going to have, to me, what's the best kill so far. But we're also moving now in the slasher horror genre to a different place. And that is these three characters are so bankable and so revered by the horror-going audience that they end up being the star more so than the protagonist trying to avoid them. You're looking for interesting ways, whether it's a harpoon through the eye or putting someone in a sleeping bag and setting it on fire. Or in this particular one, the best one in my opinion, Mm -hmm. is drowning the girl in the scalding hot water of the tub. Yeah, We're changing the dynamic of how these films work. And it's not about the boogeyman boo stalking. And now we're moving to super, super, super violent to Mm -hmm. try to outdo the other two competitors. Add that to Carpenter because he's not De Palma, Jesse. There's no part of him. That's a Brian De Palma. No no, no, no way. Right. 
he's very moody. I would actually say in some ways, auteur and horror. Mm -hmm. No wonder he was drinking. <laughs> the guy's miserable. Look, I mean, she, oh, poor guy, miserable being so busy. Yeah. Everybody's so hot. No, that's I mean, what, that's what I said. Yeah. yeah. So you're right. But I understand the frustration. And there's times in the film where I think it shows where I think there's pieces that are just mailed in. Like I got to get through this beat to get to what I need to get to, which is fade out. And you got to think because the fog necessarily wasn't like a huge hit and that it had its own production set of issues and he started dating Adrian Barbeau at that time. So he had all this marital bliss and whatnot. But I think Carpenter knew he's like, man, I finally did what I wanted to do. I have a window now and I have a window to kind of strike in. And if I'm just like striking out on all these ideas, like I got to do something. And I, that's kind of what did him in. I mean, I love all of those films that he made in that period, but. No one went to see them. It's, the, it's a damn shame. Well, I think Carpenter works with mm -hmm. very, very small budgets. Yeah. Highly commercialized, big industry marketing movement behind his films is not the space that he's good in. Yeah. Like, I love Big Trouble in Little China, but that's a B movie. Yeah. With A talent. Yeah. Like, Kurt Russell's A talent. Mm -hmm. But Escape from New York is also B movie and done really well. The Thing is an A movie, but probably the most commercially failed film of his entire franchise because yeah. they didn't, re and we've got into the marketing on that 100,000 times. Mm -hmm. He does better with less yeah. because it allows him to be creative and showcase the ability that he has to put a nice picture before the audience cheaply and authentically. I don't think the violence although it might play in that because mm -hmm. how do you show that on screen? Yeah. Is his chosen vehicle to do that? Sure. One of them was Ernie. Okay, well, there's we got there's a lot to dive into here. I like the real world ramifications. Like, look, one of your your, your child was one of the victims that we found here in this in this house, and there's like a real reaction to the gravity of those events. And then you have this uh, you have the, this Ben Tramer element. So th this is absolutely just hilarious to me. So yeah. <laughs> in the prior film. Lori had enough to, to confess to Annie that she'd rather go to the dance with Ben Tramer. And she's like, oh, Ben Tramer, huh? So in the span of that film, she calls him and she's like, yeah, I told him. And he was very interested when I told him how attracted you were to him. And he went out drinking with Mike Godfrey. So <laughs> Matt and I are going to write the Ben Tramer story. Halloween 12th. Where Ben Tramer gets the news and then go gets pissed drunk. And then he gets super duper high and then like goes to this party and then goes trick or treating. And he's, I'm going to put this, look at this mask. This mask is so cool. Boom. Again, just get hit by this car and just get exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, 
Yeah. I think it, it's a nice mechanism because it gets the scent off of the Myers trail for a little bit. And maybe that's just biding time with the authorities, but it does kind of say maybe he did kill and we can kind of let our guard down a bit, except Loomis. Remember he's at an 11 mm-hmm. this entire time. Uh, poor Ben Tramer to, to, to him. <laughs> but, uh, what do you think of, um, you, you were very vocal about it. The, this authority figure, you said it kind of takes up a lot of the running time and they really don't factor into much of the film. So I'm not even going to argue with you on that one. You kind of just stole the question I was going to ask you. You just asked me, but I'll return it to mm-hmm. you. Okay. So if Carpenter's drinking every night, cause he's so unhappy with having to write this script, let's talk about the relationships and, and I'm getting to the answer in this question, but let me set this up first. Let's talk about the relationships with the people that he had on set. You hear terrible stories of like Mickey Rourke. You hear terrible stories of Christian Bale on set. Ask Lily Tomlin about what a bastard David O. Russell could be, and he'll tell you the same story about her. Like, you know, we can get into William Friedkin and Roy Schneider. Like, there's lots of stories of people not getting along. I've never heard one about John Carpenter. Now, Deborah Hill may be an exception, and but that's more about love than it is professional work ethic. Yeah, sure. If Nick Castle, who played Michael in the first film, is going to go on later with what's his nuts from this film. Oh, Lance Guest. <laughs> to make The Last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. He's going to direct that film. This is all in the Carpenter family tree, shall we say. Good, yeah. Was there no one around that John Carpenter didn't say to, man, I'm really struggling with this and I need help. Let's see if we can't beat this out a little bit better because I think it saves one of the things that's frustrating about this film for me. And that is Michael is heading to get Lori Mm -hmm. and that's going to occur in the hospital. Meanwhile, Loomis is hanging out with this cop who no one gives a rip about and is not going to play out to any significance at all in this movie other than to turn pages in the screenplay so that you have a full feature. We are back at one of the houses in Haddonfield and people are stoning the windows as Loomis is standing outside discussing whether maybe Michael has been found or not only to then have that sequence with Ben Tramer to then go to the autopsy room. Like we're just Mm -hmm. dicking around, get to the showdown between the doctor and the patient with Lori somewhere in between in that weird triangle that the three of them have where you're trying to figure out who's the most crazy by the end of the film. Cause Loomis gives Michael a run for his money by the time this film's over. Yeah. But I think we're suffering from, from screenplay fatigue. Sure. And I wish he had brought someone in. So I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. So John Carpenter calls you and you're Nick Castle. Okay. <laughs> and he says, I need help. Yeah. What do you do? I would say yes, but Nick Castle on his end, he's a fellow film grad of USC with Carpenter. I mean, he was trying to make his own films at this time. So the bullpen's not full at this point. You don't have really a lot of the people that you can turn to or turn like Tommy Lee Wallace. Hey, do you want to direct this? Like, "Eh, I'm not ready for that. Or I'll just, I'll kind of help out. They're not willing to go back for you. So you do have to end up taking a blunt of the responsibility. And then you got Mustafa saying, you need to make this film, make this film at this time. Uh, And so I think you kind of get a, and it doesn't seem like a rushed movie. It just seems like three years after they had plenty of time. Yeah. I think, I just think they're, 
the logical and, and the reasonings behind what's going on is just more stretched. You need even more of a suspension of disbelief to say, okay, this is why he's he's going about his his quest. Look, in slasher horror, the cops showing up and being poorly equipped to help the survivors is a pretty common trope. But most of the time, we handle that in under 15 minutes. The cops in this movie could present fodder for Michael to do in if they needed it, but we don't even need that because they're going to be these very amorous nurses at the hospital, which suit more of kind of the babysitter slash my hottie sister and some weird incestual repression thing that I have working on. I mean, they're not even stormtroopers. Yeah. So it's just taking up time Mm -hmm. that could be spent in a lot of other things to develop a really great character. Michael at this point is a great character with a million questions the audience wants answered and not answering them keeps the thing going. But teasing it also keeps going. And that's going. why the original is so much better, is because there aren't these scenes. The, right. the extent that you get is Loomis and Brackett, but Loomis essentially is just touting the myth of, the mythos of Michael Myers. Yeah. He had the blackest eyes I've ever seen in my entire life. So it's just... A, doll, it's a, a wrong movie. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> Joss. Yeah. Donald Pleasance and Robert Shaw. Both in, drunk in the a, whole time on set. In together. Drunk. My God. Yeah. <laughs> No, like he, he's just uh, propelling the the myth of what Michael Myers is, this boogie, the shape in the shadows. Yeah. But here you have, you know, the authorities not being reactive or proactive to the events. Everyone's just like, yeah, whatever. We're going to look for him, but we're not going to like have a lot of effort in looking. We don't see the effort of them searching door to door with Myers. I like to see those scenes. Um, so let's get to the hospital here. So when we get to the hospital, the very first thing we see is just, is just so shocking. And if you see it, you miss it. But this little boy comes to the emergency room with his mom and he's got a razor blade sticking in his mouth. And I've always like, man, what the hell is going on there? But you know, at the time, you know, the urban legend myths of tainted Halloween candy, you know, someone stick a razor blade in like a Snickers and there you go. And around this time you have like the real true crime thing of the Chicago Tylenol murders where someone... Who they cyanide. never found laced cyanide in bottles of Tylenol. So I think that's an interesting little touch. I mean, th- th- this film tries to get at the roots of other Halloween aspects that aren't Michael Myers. Urban legends and pagan things that, whether they work or not, is up to you. But this is an interesting, it's just a, hmm, just a lot of weird shit going on on this night here. That That's going on. Like, let's, who's that guy that's doing that? <laughs> I should have paid closer attention to this. The boy that has the razor blade in his mouth, what's mm-hmm. his costume? He's a pirate. Pirate. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So we get to the hospital. Do we want that costume to be a clown? Oh, yeah. That'd be great. For sure. But it just kind of goes to show there's sinister happenings going on in Haddonfield. It's not just Michael. You got people lacing candy bars with razor blades. Yeah. Does this setting work for you as a mostly single location? We spend a good time here. Does it work for you in the building of suspense for a sequel? Because this setting has always been maybe my favorite of the entire series. I like, I love this hospital, this clinic. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It works for me. I think it has the pieces that would make it interesting. And because there's room elements in the hospital, it creates an individual household-like setting to what you saw in the original film. You have roommates. You have the person in the room next door. Um, 
And I think there's enough places just in the amount of times I've ever been in a hospital where you could easily get lost or hide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it works for me. I'm yeah, that's, this is not a jumping off point. Sure, at all. Yeah. I think it's a good setting for us. Good. Rather than being a camp again. You or, like this more than suburbia? It's, it's just, it feels like an extension of suburbia. Sure. I like it because it's not like a huge, it's not like Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. It's not this gigantic hospital that's sparsely populated it's a small town, little clinic. Like mm -hmm. it's doesn't, it has the night shift. Like it's not even like fully staffed at the moment, right. but they still have patients in there. So the isolation element, we like, I gotta do, let's get it somewhere where help is far away, which is true. We're going to cut off communications, which is possible. And, you know, we're going to wound our, our protagonist is already wounded. So the amount of outs, as you like to always talk about, there's not a lot of outs here. Are you going to literally run down the road to safety? You can't. You're injured. Um, are you going to call? You can't. Are you going to drive away? Michael took care of it, slashed all the tires in the parking lot. So it, it, it definitely works for me as a setting. Yeah. Forget it, bud. I have to go back to work. You want to go for breakfast later? Just have to get back, that's all. Now, bud, don't be that way. <gasps> it is a good death. It is. And each time she comes up, her skin's peeling a little bit more. Yikes. And his hand isn't. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the supernatural aspect right. of, like, what's making... This guy's already got six slugs in him. Sam Hain. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, he's got six bullets in him. And yeah, his hand's not scalding in this in this water here. There's a supernatural element about this guy that we're starting to explore. Um, and it works for me in this one. They don't go so far into the reasoning behind it, and I'm just kind of willing to buy the the unknown aspect of what's making this guy tick. That's, again, another thing I've always liked about Michael Myers, the mystery behind him. Mm -hmm. That's going to kind of get ruined here in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> but, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, no, you're right. The death scenes are just so punched up compared to the last one. Something that doesn't work for me in this movie, and I don't know whose decision this was. In film one, we don't see, like, Michael's eyes. We just see, like, black, the blackest eyes. The, we see these chasms um, in uh, in the mask. In this one, we see the pupils. Uh, that's a miss for me. As we're getting to a more supernatural element, having cavernous or vacuous eyes plays better than a human element. Um, I almost wish that was reversed. Mm -hmm. Whereas Michael becomes less Michael and more the embodiment of evil, supernaturally personified, whatever you want to say. Nice. That would make a little bit more sense. But that's, I mean, it's not a deal breaker, but you're right. And I will also say with how the film ends in that strange bit, in the room with gas and blinding, maybe there's a conscious decision to showcase the eyes because that's going to play sort of. That's uh, not a great defense, but the arduous lengths that they went through to showcase the lighter and set that up to how it plays later, there is at least an acknowledgement of making sure that something just doesn't appear with no sure. rhyme or reason. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. but but I do agree with you wholeheartedly. There's nothing behind that mask is, is scarier than 
beady eyes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to play this clip. I forgot what this one is, so let's play it and okay. let's, let's just talk about it. Right. In order to appease the gods, uh. the druid priests held fire rituals. Prisons of war, criminals, the insane, animals were burned alive in baskets. By observing the way they died, the druids believed they could see omens of the future. 2,000 years later, we've come no further. Samhain isn't evil spirits, it isn't goblins, ghosts, or witches. It's the unconscious mind. We're all afraid of the dark inside ourselves. Dr. Loomis, please listen to me. There's a file on Michael Myers that nobody knew about. I've seen everything. No, it was hidden, sealed by the court after his parents were killed. Now, after the governor heard what happened tonight, he authorized Dr. Rogers to open it. What file? It isn't fair. They should have allowed you to examine everything. That girl, that Strode girl, that's Michael Myers' sister. Uh. She was born two years before he was committed. Two years after, his parents died and she was adopted by the Strodes. They requested that the records be sealed in order to protect the family. Jesus, don't you see what he's doing here in Haddonfield? He killed one sister 15 years ago, now he's trying to kill the other. Tonight, after I shot him, where did they take her? The clinic. Oh my God, this is so avoidable. Well, uh, okay, uh... So there's a lot going on in what just got said. So first of all, the the two Myers parents that pulled the mask off him the second died three years after that, right? Together in a car accident or something. So okay, that's crazy. It was the Cult of Thorn, but oh, it's another movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is literally screenwriting. You're backed up in a corner. You don't know which direction to take the story. I got to give them some <laughs> second act reversal recognition right. here. Yeah. What is it going to be? Ah, oh, it's his sister. Like it's they're related. Let's let's have it be a little twist like that. Oh. And I'll do that in a big exposition dump, so you get a reference to the druids and the pagan elements of All Hallows Eve, which could have been used had they set it up in some way in this film prior. They'll play it out in Season of the Witch a little bit, but that's the wrong <laughs> film now. So we have druids, we have Samhain, we have an adoption, and we have dead parents in a car auto accident. I'm deal. assuming. I'm assuming they didn't even say that. So. Um, Where do you want to start with that? Uh, the one thing I'm most thankful for for Halloween 2018 is undoing this. Yeah. This is just so stupid. I've I've never, even as a young, I was like, really? They're related? Uh, I guess. Because then it just becomes the linchpin of the rest of the series of, oh, it's then it's his niece and he's after the niece now. And then he's after Jamie Lee Curtis and Josh Hartnett. And now he's, they're dead and I'm going after Dangertainment and I'm so glad that they backed that one up. And it was just, like we said, it's just like, man, this girl came to my steps. It's kind of like my babysitter, like my sister. Uh, I'm just going to follow her around. And whatever happens, happens. We're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on a relationship that has never been defined. All the way back to the original film. He's not after Lori because in that film, she is his sister. He's after Lori because she is a reflection of a lost youth or what he feels as a neglected youth. Him wanting to do in his entire family is a possibility. 
But him wanting to do in his entire family after he's visited a school and stabbed some children's artwork yeah, and that, wrote in blood on the chalkboard Sam Hain. Yeah, that's silly. It's stupid. It's not even it's stupid. Yeah. Especially because it has zero bearing on the film other than to introduce this Sam Hain element, which I have big issues with the three of taking Michael down the pagan supernatural route. I think the pagan element, we already talked about that, was set up in Friday Mm -hmm. with the pyre that he had with his mom's head. And Freddy's already got, you know, sole IP rights to the supernatural pieces. Like, he's already got that. Yeah. But they're choosing to go there, and (sighs) it's a bad, bad decision. That whole scene, that whole three minutes in that car is John Carpenter saying, yeah, this is story is is fucked. Yeah. We got to fix it. So family, druid cults, and yeah, family. Keep going. And kudos to him. This is why I love him as a filmmaker, because he's so honest. Right, he agrees. He's In, re- in retrospect, he's like, yeah, that was a stupid idea. That's all, that's all really fixable. It didn't have to go that route. Again, and it did, so whatever. But... With just a little bit of time and a little bit of thought, I think that this is sour mashed easily. Yeah. And we'll do that in the flight. Nightcap. Nightcap, yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the other deaths in here because as you said, like up until this point of six films in to this two casks, these are the best best death scenes in what we've seen so far. We had scalding hot water. We had... uh, Air bubble hypodermic needle to the temple. Yeah, that one's, and you get a close up of that too. Uh, you get, and then the one that always disturbed me as a kid, just because I didn't understand it. Mrs. Alves on a gurney, mm-hmm. they got it being bled out on the floor. That's pretty gruesome. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Michael has the intellectual capability to perform a procedure like that, but he did. Um, and then the Lance guess, you know, he hits his head and then we'll talk about whether or not he's dead or not at the end of the movie. Um, and then you had your favorite. This one's my favorite. Drop to the floor. I mean, it's it's great because it shows the pure strength that this guy has. I don't know if that would be physically possible to lift someone up with a scalpel with one arm, but he does it, and it's a uh, it's a very striking image. But it's it's the first time Lori's come eye to eye with Michael since the since the house since they um since Loomis shot him outside the house. So she's like, oh my god, this guy's still around. Uh, yeah, this that that one that one's my favorite. But I'm with you, Matt. Like this film really upped the stakes uh, or the the gore factor from the last one and the rest of these other slashers. Uh, definitely memorable uh, death sequences here. Yeah, they're they're to the tenth degree. Oh, and more violent. Than we the forgot. Uh, yeah, Mr. Garrett takes a, a hammer to the to the head. <laughs> the mm-hmm. security guy. Um, okay, so we, we get we get our chase. We get the similar uh, Michael stocking music. I remember that's an F sharp on the piano. That dun 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 dun. Uh, do you like the music in this one? I mean, it's Carpenter. Sure, it's a lot more synthy than than the last one. Mm-hmm. Less piano. Uh, yeah, it worked. It worked. That works for me too. 
What do you think of this kind of final chase? Okay, we got to talk about it because hold on. Let's before let's talk about the scalpel for a minute. Okay, <laughs> we both brought this up. Yeah, there's a significant amount of time and effort put into watching him get the new knife, butcher knife essentially, <clears throat> and that knife has burned because it's stuck in some children's art in a grades level classroom at some nondescript school in Haddonfield. We burn the knife after Michael steals it from the counter and uses it to slash up just another babysitter or a young woman for the purposes of having some violence in the film that's a nobody. And then we take that knife out of play because he leaves it behind at the school. Again, not to sour mash everything, but the choice of weapons for these killers is really important mm -hmm. from harpoons to knife gloves to you name it brute strength whatever it might be i think children sometimes have through curiosity what ends up becoming a sick fascination with things because they're curious if michael i'm even giving them an out for the scalpel versus the knife yeah if michael is watching the doctor who we're gonna see like the doctor in this film that has the night shift dr mixter the drunk the drunk one yeah <laughs> perform some rudimentary surgery on someone with the scalpel, then there's a great moment in that, which is when Dr. Mixter comes back and looks at the tools on, like he leaves, the room's clean, the nurse goes in to clean it up, whatever, like sterilize all the instruments of, of surgery. Mm -hmm. The scalpel's missing, and that knife is put in its place on the table where the tools are. Yeah, that'd be good. And really easy. And then you have a reason mm -hmm. why he's doing that. And through the sick fascination, which is in the original film, that tilting your head to the right as you admire your work, that disgustingly sick mm -hmm. curiosity that is childlike, yep. you get to play out in Michael. Yeah. And then there's a reason why he's not using the knife, because he wants to be like this doctor or he is fascinated That's by good. it. That's good, yeah. But instead, we've burned the knife at the school and... <laughs> As much as I like what a scalpel can do, mm -hmm. I thought the same thing too. I hope that's a really not heavy nurse because she's picked up with the scalpel. And, and again, would it break? Like, are we going to... Sure. I'm not going to play physics. That's stupid. That yeah. ruins every film. Yeah. <sighs> I know what you mean though. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. That knife's important, man. Mm -hmm. We spend five minutes watching him steal that knife. Well, because we've already established in the last film, in the last episode, how phallic it is as an, as an image too. Okay, so then you just took the next thing that I was going to steal. Yeah. You just literally stole the words right out of my brain. If we're watching Lori be penetrated mm -hmm. with the hypodermic needle to put her under, and we're talking about penetration and the knife being the representation of the phallus, then I can see how there's another line that fits in with that same space that goes to what pissed Michael off. Yeah. His sister was getting banged out upstairs when he she should have been taking him trick-or-treating. Yeah. Huge miss. Yeah, big miss. Again, another miss. Yeah. But I don't know if I hate the movie. No, no, no. Right. Again. It's, it's yes. interesting. No, like, right. it's, it's, I have a weird relationship with this movie. And mm -hmm. it's like, I, I can, I can, Loomis being nuts the entire movie and shooting out windows and yelling down the street. It's a great character. Yeah. Do you think, yeah, you think he's like a pro, he's like the Van Helsing element to Michael's Dracula. Perfectly said. And like no one believes him, and he has the tools to bring him down. So um, informed, his zealotry borders on insanity. Isn't that what makes Van Helsing so good? Is oh, Van yeah. Helsing needs to almost be as crazy as Dracula for sure. You like you have to meet the villain on his level 
at some point. Amen. And I think Loomis, as much as I'm going to make fun of him in the rest of the movies going forward, he has that. Like, he's got him beat. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I've always, uh, I think that's, I told you before that, you know, they wanted Christopher Lee and Peter, the literal Van Helsings to play this part. I mean, that's who they thought of. Well, if, if we're getting into this family thing that this movie likes to do, you can make the case that Loomis has raised Michael. Oh, yeah. He's been there since he was eight. Mm-hmm. Watched him, like that whole bit in the for 10 years, for another, whatever that whole time frame is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to do it too much like the jerk. We've been together two weeks, but it felt like 16, you know, that whole. I can't believe I'm going to say this right now and strike it from the record if we need to in the future. But that's actually, I think, something the remake does very well is Malcolm McDowell visiting him in the asylum and like building that relationship of, I have been watching this kid for years. I think that's of an element I did want to see in a reimagining. That's something that I could, I could do with more of, uh, the rest of the film does not work, but that, that one, that, that, that's okay. Okay. Sure. Okay. To that then oh raising God. your kid, <laughs> to raising, to raising your Michael. Yeah. You raised him in your image. He came out just as insane as you. You'd, right. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So we, okay, let's talk about Jamie Lee Curtis in this thing. Cause you know, I love her scream queen. I love the fog. I love prom night, terror train road game. I love all these movies. You didn't mention perfect <laughs> with John Travolta coming yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, she is just, I don't know if she was making another movie at the same time that this landed on the doorstep too. She has this wig that I just can't unsee, but she's so comatose for this entire movie. She's less reactive and like, just kind of like, uh, and I don't know if that works for my final girl in this movie either. I mean, I'm glad that like Jamie Lee Curtis is like is so fortunate that they've given her two other opportunities to do this character better in H2O and in 2018 to like, let me show you how I'd really react to this. I wouldn't be like drugged up in a bed. I would like really want to meet him on his turf. Uh, I like this chase because she's injured and it's through the labyrinth of the hospital. Uh, but... That's kind of it. She's in bed the rest of the movie. And so I think that's a bit of a miss too with, with her character. You've always hated that. Mm-hmm. You referenced it earlier in the podcast. Amazing Spider-Man 2. We go to great lengths to create Jamie Foxx as the Electro. Hey. And then lock him up the whole film. I God. hate that. I don't know why people do that. Original, like the new Godzilla, the first one. Here's this awesome monster and I watch him swim for 45 minutes. So if you're going to use the character and create them as important, then use them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what's fair, and it could have fixed the movie or it could have fixed the character in the movie, is what allows Jamie Lee Curtis to be the final girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Scream's going to do a decent job of giving a thesis or an argument as to why she survives, but... You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm not sure that that was crafted that way. That's just extrapolated from it in a really well-written scene in that film. We have a chance with Jamie Lee Curtis, instead of keeping her drugged and comatic, over a broken leg that's not even broken. She's like a fractured tibia. Not that that's some little thing, but she is way too injured and, co- and comatic for what has happened to her. Well, what kills me is that scene when they go into the room and she's literally just like, uh, and they're like, what's wrong with Lori? She's like, not moving. She's just like staring ahead. Like, I don't, I don't know what that was. Cause she had this vision of visiting Michael, which the, the, the version they show of Lori going to visit Michael's like an eight year old version of Lori. You think you'd remember if this guy was your brother, you know what I mean? Lori's strength is her ability to do a good job of taking care of those kids. Yeah. That's why he's after her. Mm-hmm. 
So there needs to be something in this film where she's trying to communicate with Tommy's parents or something about like worrying about those kids. So I got a question for you because do you think then that the logical job for her that they give her in H2O, the headmistress of a school, fits her pretty well? Yes. Yeah, that's good. I don't know if that's a great movie, but that fits. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. I also think the 2018 version of what she's left as a behind the husk of the sweet girl who's now hardened, <laughs> heavy artillery badass yeah. also makes sense. Oh, yeah. But asleep mm -hmm. and drugged. Yeah, that don't work for me. Me either. Yeah. You're, and you're just, you're wasting a character. Yeah, I wonder there. I mean, she's at this point a big star because of the first movie. She's double billed with Donald Pleasance on the opening title card. Let's, let's see her react to this film. So we get this nice little chase and then uh, Loomis and the nurse from the, not even the nurse, the just the... I don't know you know what she is. I think she is a nurse of mm -hmm. um, Smith's Grove and the marshal. Yeah. They come here as everyone's dead. Okay. Michael's been shot 11 times now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Still trucking along. Stop! He's dead. No, he's not. Look at him. He's still breathing. Okay. There's a two-way radio in the marshal's car. I want you to go outside. Get on that radio and get hunt. Now, wait a minute. I'm the only one authorized to use that. Move! I'm sorry I left you. Are you all right? Why won't he die? Get away from him! But he stopped breathing! No! Okay, Matt, the first time I saw it, that was the deal breaker for me, that mm. scene right there. Mm -hmm. Because they edit movies way more on TV now than they did back in the 90s. Like, they used to show some of the some of the good bits. So they showed the cop getting his throat slit and the and the blood kind of trickling down. When I saw that, I was like, I can't watch this movie anymore. This is too extreme for me. Wow. And then I was just like scarred until curiosity got the best of me, which is actually Halloween 5, and I'll tell that story another day. Mm. But <clears throat> so, man, Michael's just chalking up a body count at this point, and so Loomis and Lori have nothing to do but to retreat into the recesses of uh, the clinic here. Are those... Lines by the cop, ad-libbed. They are garbage. Okay. <laughs> I'm the only one authorized to use that. He's not breathing. Like, that bastard deserves to die. Yeah, that's it's pretty bad. Pretty robotic. Very wooden. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's not what you would say there. I know. So we get to the, the operation room, which we've been in a lot. I mean, this is the whole room where Mrs. Alves and everything's taking place here. Uh, okay, so we're locked in there. Loomis gives Lori a gun. What are you going to say? Was the throat slashing scene more troubling for you than Mrs. Alves being bled out on the gurney? They were both troubling. Those are both good. Yeah. Good thing you didn't see the scalding face. Yeah, I know, right? Because I love that you brought that up. Mm -hmm. Let me, how old were you? Okay, so fourth grade. Oh my gosh, so like nine. Yeah. 
So you are essentially Tommy's age and that sick curiosity, that, that macabre curiosity that I talked about is literally what drew you to wanting to continue. Yeah, and I had parents that didn't like necessarily like regulate my television watching. So like I was spoiled. I had a TV in my room. To irresponsible <laughs> babysitters and non-regulated parents on TV watching. But to the larger context, yeah. think about that, Jesse. If you and I have posed that horror is a return of the uncanny, then you are literally explaining to the audience right now mm -hmm. that very same thing. Yeah. It's right there in this film, all around it in a hundred different places. Just get there. And at a young age, I think I think it works well. I think the mystery of like what's taking place here and the setting of like, man, I had to have stitches around that age at a hospital. I mean, it kind of looks oh. like this place. And when so I've always been like like September to like November always makes me a little nervous because it looks like this movie. It looks like these movies. And I'm like, man, what if someone was just walking around like a maniac? It works for me. The well, someone is. Yeah. There people are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The real life monsters mm -hmm. that, that totally freak me out. That's why Halloween's always been my favorite franchise. And it through thick and thin and the crazy things that we're gonna get to, it always will be. Like it's it's there's just something unique about him as a character. I wonder if you can answer we're off task here, but I want to ask you this anyway. Mm. I wonder if you can answer this honestly without bias. When you take all of the parts of Nightmare and all of the parts of Friday and all of the parts of Halloween, is the sum total of Halloween great enough to make that the winner from all entries in three? Easily. I agree. Mm -hmm. Because this, this is a solid sequel, as much as we've kind of hated on it. Yeah, probably top six of all of them. Number four is really good. It gets a great reboot in H2O. Mm -hmm. And for the remake train, I can't believe I'm doing this again, but of the three remakes, the Rob Zombie one, well, I don't want any part of it, is probably the better made of all three of them. And it's then, not your cup of tea, but it's effective. It is effective. And then we got an inevitable kind of redo in last uh, 2018 that it was pretty solid too. So, oh, I don't even know like what number two, if number two would probably be... Shit, it might be Friday the 13th. Nightmare might be losing the, the race. See, it's funny you said that because had you asked me this any time prior to maybe the last four months, I would have said it's Nightmare. <clears throat> but I have to be honest, after what we went through last week with Nightmare 2, mm -hmm. one's pretty good, three's amazing, and the rest of that franchise is mostly terrible except for the reboot, and that's slightly tolerable with Jackie Earl Haley. And I'm telling you, you, you were harsh on two. Man, I don't know how you're gonna do five and six because I know like it's worse. It's, it's somehow worse because I think I agree with you mm -hmm. in the sequencing of those. Like once we get Jason in space and Jason takes Manhattan, now we are bordering and just absurd. Yeah, it's that's it's interesting. But as hard as we were on two last week for Friday at moments, one and two collectively are still better than Nightmare One and Two. Yeah. Nightmare Two is awful. Yeah. So I think I agree with you. I think f there's misses, lots of them. But I think Halloween has the greatest legacy behind it. And I just wonder, as we finish up this thought, or I finish up this thought, mm -hmm. is that because the original laid such a solid foundation, rock solid, that despite earthquake or fire or flood, there was enough insurance laid down that the house still stood when it was all done. I think so. And I think you had um, Mustafa Akkad, uh 
who was just so instrumental in getting these movies made. I mean, he was, no matter through hell or high water, we'll find a way to do another one. Mm -hmm. We'll do another one. Mm -hmm. And he kept it moving along. And the scream factor in 1996 can't be understated. And because I've rewatched those movies, I, I, the horror of the nineties is altogether kind of a bit of a miss for me other than like that film and a few others. The influence of the success of that you see in H2O. I, I, I'm almost positive Kevin Williamson either. I'm going to look it up right now. He did. I think he, he did rewrites on, yes. on that movie. And there's even portions of the Scream soundtrack in H2O. Right. I mean, you see the influence of such an influential film on Halloween. I mean, like we can play on the tropes of Slasher and bring it back to its roots. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't think the other two franchises, other than Wes Craven kind of coming back here and there it doesn't they don't have those conduits that like have like a producer and um other things that they're like when screen came out no one was like yeah let's do jason like that no you took him to hell and you ruined it story in its simplest form is protag versus antag and what scream was able to do in a really smart way was help people understand the slasher horror genre through jamie kennedy But the crux of the defining moment in that for the final girl is not Laurie Strode on accident. It's Laurie Strode because that is the correct answer to what they should be. All of the things that Jamie Kennedy outlines, and we even had a conversation about the first time flesh with with Jamie Lee Curtis, because I was thinking Eraser was probably the closest. I'd forgot all about trading places and perfect. And I think she's topless and perfect, but whatever. Like, the point is not to celebrate that. The point is when Jamie, because I was thinking about that, like for all of the the breasts that are in slasher horror, they were never hers. Mm-hmm. The reason that Scream is so smart is because when that piece was written, it was written about something that was also smart. So it's a smart take on something that's well-crafted. It wasn't the final girl in Nightmare. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the final girl in Friday. Yeah. It was Laurie Strode. Yeah, that whole end sequence, this isn't the screw, well, the, the, it's a film that Warren's talking about, uh, is genius. It's uh, Randy uh, Meeks, uh, Jamie Kennedy's character is just so good. Like he's the, mm-hmm. you guys don't know the rules. And then he everyone leaves and he's drunk there and he's watching Halloween. Like that's me. And he's like, Look behind you, Jamie. Look behind you. I mean, they played on what was this? And you're right. They're not talking about the other ones. They're talking about Halloween. Yeah. Because it was set up so well. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Williamson was uncredited in the story credit on H2O. That guy had like free reign at Dimension after that. Like sure. He was like the hottest screenwriter in Hollywood at that point. What happened? <laughs> Dawson's Creek and that was it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so they're here in the, the operation room and Lori puts two more bullets in. Uh, Myers' head is a great image of the blood kind of seeping out of the mask, but how does Michael not have just like two gaping eye holes in his head now? What's keeping this guy alive? And then Loomis, or he's been stabbed with the scalpel, unloads the gas as they before they would all pass out. Again, the good continuity, the lighter was given to him by the sheriff earlier in the film, and we've seen it come. He's lit lit a a cigarette for Nancy Stevens, the nurse too. Mm Pulls it out, and we get this. Yeah, now. Yeah, now. (laughs) 
And that should be the end of Halloween right there. It should be. I don't know how two men survive a gas explosion like that. But our film comes to a conclusion and, you know, Lori's the sole survivor. Not before Michael can come out and then in his burn suit and then just collapse. But she's kind of carried away. And I love the kind of parting image of, of Lori leaving as Mr. Sandman plays again. And she's just like, man, again, what the viewer is expecting with these two films. What a long ass night this has been. Yeah. And man, I've been through hell and that's, that, that's kind of it for me. So, so to speak. And the movie ends and I, I, I like how it just kind of trails off with the Mr. Sandman song. Yeah. And then Jimmy who either dies from a concussion in the theatrical version, or if you've been fortunate enough to see the TV cut is in the ambulance as well in a very kind of stupid scene. Um, but that's the end of the movie. I, they lucked out on that fog. Oh boy, didn't they? An LA fog. <laughs> They're like, we got to film today. We got to film the end. So it just fits the movie so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple things here before we kind of get into into some ratings. I mentioned Lori's wig, absolutely terrible. The Sam Hain element. I mean, Loomis covers it briefly, but if you were tasked, okay, Matt, we're gonna let you write Halloween Five. You're like, oh the hell are we going to do now? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That hasn't been done. You would have to kind of go back and rewatch these movies and then like pick out elements. Find something. Sam Hain. Let's expand on that. And then that becomes the cult of Thorn, which is just totally crazy going forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, $2.5 million budget, $25 million gross. So yeah, it made this movie made some money uh, enough for them to want more. And what they wanted was more Michael Myers, and they gave them Season of the Witch, which I don't know if that movie's that movie's not terrible either. It's just what people didn't want. Yeah. So the idea of doing an anthology just got killed right from the get go. But uh, I think I think that's all uh, the notes that I have. Universal Picture. So obviously this is less independent, more studio influ. I. I I don't know if it's been my film watching as of late, but I just see the influence of suits like in a ton of films I've been watching lately. Just people saying we need more bodies. We want more Michael. We want it to be the same, but we don't want it to be the same. Now Mm -hmm. go write that. Mm -hmm. I feel and it's just like you feel films being made by committee instead of telling someone just go, go make it. And we trust you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel that Dino De Laurentiis, like notorious yes. <laughs> film producer. Hands-on, should we say? <laughs> yes. yeah. You'll see his name come up. and I'll tell you what your creativity is. Yeah. And usually when you see his name come up, there's usually a, like, uh, a production story uh, associated with that one. Yeah. But uh, what is your favorite tasting note of Halloween 2? Can I actually go first? Yeah. I actually think it is that that bit with with the cop there at the end because to me Michael Myers and we're talking about at that point a film franchise that isn't even 20 years old at this point people kind of still talked about him on the playground like mm-hmm. their sister or their brother had let them watch Halloween and my best buddy Steven knew about Halloween and he had seen this cuz he had an older brother and I remember we used to have the birthday parties at his place and we used to play Michael Myers, where his brother would be him. We'd play the music off the computer. It'd be echoing throughout the house, and we'd have to like run away from him. Fun. 
it was fun. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of had that like lore. So I was like, maybe I should check this out. And then I saw it, and I was like, oh my god! And it was that moment where it was like, don't, don't check his heartbeat. He's he's but he stopped breathing, and then he gets the slit. Brutal. I've long contended that in all of these, I think it's the remake of Nightmare. The sequence where the girl is burned and the boy are burned in the sleeping bags mm. is my favorite. What do you mean, Friday? Did I say, did I say Mary? Yeah, sorry, Friday. Is that the remake? Remake one? Yeah, it is, yeah. I think my favorite tasting note is actually going to undo that today. It's been a while. I had forgot all about this, but it's the nurse that gets drowned in that hot tub scalded. There's four or five sequences, and each time she reemerges from the water, there's a little bit more damage done to the water that is literally at scalding levels. Gruesome. And then what I love about it is the subtleness. Even though I'm not sure I belie- I, I, I'm into the supernatural piece of Michael, but his skin isn't burned. And if you, let me think here, that would be his right hand that he's dunking her with, and she kisses his left hand. Okay, so a bit different on that. Um, so that's not... Never mind about that. That's strange too. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just really well done. It's a good death scene. It sure is. Yeah. And I love also that as she's putting her clothes back on, her boyfriend's getting choked out and neck broken in the glass behind her. Behind the glazed glass. Really well yeah, done. Yeah, stage very well. What's the... Oh my God! Moment from this movie where we need to drink the rest of the Weller. Sam Hain on the chalkboard <laughs> and blood. Is it just the whole school scene? Yeah, that sucks. It, is it, pr- it, it doesn't have to suck, though. That could have been really good. It could have been. It could have been really good. <laughs> Sam ain't on the chalkboard. Yeah. Yeah, I know. What you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is that yours, too? No, mine's the little boy with the razor in his mouth. Yeah, it's, just, it's a Well, that's just such an uh, interesting inclusion, like, story-wise. It's like, yeah, I kind of want to know a little bit more about that. We don't have time because that's not the movie, but yikes. I can't even imagine getting, can you imagine a razor blade, like, in between your tongue ah oh my and then <laughs> the mother the best line of the movie we're gonna go home and we're gonna play games and i was like damn lady it's probably like two in the morning exactly. gonna go home and go to bed you're gonna play monopoly at two in the morning <laughs> start a quick game of monopoly at 2 a.m uh that little boy too he's um i guess he's a carpenter staple but he's the little boy from the the fog who finds the piece of driftwood on the beach so oh they had a, a rotating bullpen of actors that they like to come come back with which i like that's why i like about carpenter mm-hmm. Who's the master distiller on Halloween 2? Mine, um, and it's to me why I've always really been very fond of this movie, and it's got to be the cinematography. By You got Carpenter's guy who shot Halloween, The Thing, Escape from New York, The Fog, and all, the, and all those movies have a look. They look like a Carpenter movie. He's part of that. He's responsible for that. I think his, na- yeah, his name's right there, yeah. Director of photography, Dean Cundy. Yep. Uh these movies are great bookends because they look so similar. I mean, it may as well be John Carpenter in the director chair because it looks like the first movie, just bloodier. So great choice. He passed on Poltergeist to do this movie because uh, he was loyal to Carpenter. But Cundy, see, that's what I was getting at earlier. These people seem to really like John Carpenter. Yeah, but Cundy would get his his due to work with because he would do Back to the Future mm-hmm. and Jurassic Park. So boom, yeah, good choice. Yeah. I'm going to give you Donald Pleasance. And here's the argument. I know we kind of laughed and said he's at an 11 the whole time. I can't say with 100% certainty, but I would venture if we went back and watched every scene in this film that he is in, he ends up being 
if not the thief of the scene, then the featured player in the scene because his presence as Loomis is so wild. Mm -hmm. Like we had a good laugh when he tells the cop, you know, you go do this and you shut up to the nurse. Cause he's literally, he's saying like, I'm about to cap this fool and I don't want another word out of you, bitch. Like he, I mean, and it's just (laughs) delivered with such certainty. Yeah. Partly is like you said, because he was drunk on set. (laughs) And so it plays. I don't know if you're drinking on this one, but I know. And by the time we get to four and five, well, he just started drinking at 70. He was drinking. I think I'm sure so. he was. Yeah, I know. So we'll put him, Hopkins, and Robert Shaw all in a room together, and boy, won't that be a party. Oh, my God. And oh. Sam Peckinpah? Oh, oh, my. Oh, Jesus Christ. Not call it the Wild Bunch. Call it the Drunk Bunch. So, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to give it to Donald Pleasance. Not, and not to be silly or kitschy, I do think that character is very interesting at this point in the film. Whether you believe in, like, a heaven or not, right, nation listeners, my heaven would be a video store and you like go get a VHS tape off and you put it in the player. And it's that I get to watch Pleasance, Robert Shaw and Pekka Paul, like talk for like five hours. Oh my God, that'd be good. Or the movie you never got to see. How are you going to rate and grade Halloween two? We have rocket. Well, call single barrel and top shelf. As hard as I've been on the film, I think I'm still going to give it a call rating. There are some missteps in there, but I don't think that movie is very far away from a couple of story choices from being a masterpiece. Number one is a masterpiece. Top 10, 5 to 10 greatest horror, depending on the day for me, of all time. It's a brilliant film. This flirts with it, and I wonder if Carpenter, and not that Rick Rosenthal does a bad job, I don't think this movie suffers because of direction. Yeah. If Carpenter isn't so busy and so upset about having to do Halloween 2 when he wanted to really get into the thing, yeah. if he helms this as the director, if maybe some of that's avoidable and we get there. Look, he wrote Halloween. He understands those characters better than anybody. He wrote the second film. Well, him he and just, Deborah Hill. Yeah, they, okay, fair, right. They both get it. Mailed it in a little bit with oh, yeah. another six-pack of Coors Light. Be the first one to admit. So it's not, It's you can see it. Mm-hmm. You just don't get there. So it's call. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go, and again, it's been my favorite my favorite franchise of, of these horror, horror films. I'm going to go single barrel minus, and it gets the single barrel rating primarily because this was the first one of this entire thing I had seen before the influence of part one. Nostalgia is important. Nostalgia is important um, because it was a gateway into, man, what is this Michael character? I don't get it. It's creepy this hospital like something's working here for me because it is unsettling me so much um but over the years i've come like yeah this sister thing and this don't work for me and loomis is totally insane and Lori's a comatose this entire movie but there is nice continuity from one to two with the look the music uh the the setting i love i love the media i wish more films did that with the immediate reaction to Look, you're not telling me, like, by the time we get to Friday the 13th chapter part four and over a three-day span, Jason's killed, like, 35 people, that that wouldn't be, like, the top news story nationwide. Right. (laughs) So I like that this film directly addresses that with on-the-scene coverage. Uh, That's always always worked for me. Yeah, Single Barrel Minus. This is an incredibly important entry in the franchise, but just in horror for me. As well, I mean, you talk about eighty-one being such a great year for slashers. I mean, we had Friday one in this, in this thing. It has the potential to be so much better, it's right but there. yeah, you but just... for for what it is, there's a lot to kind of take take forward. Uh, yeah, single barrel minus. It's 
it's a good entry in this franchise. I've always, it's always going to be one of my favorites. So, where's four for you in this franchise? It's right there as well. Like yeah. that's it's another. Let's take it in a different path and kind of try some new ideas. Oh my god! And four ends so good, and they piss that away in the fifth entry too. But let's not talk about that now. But I I do like four. Mm-hmm. I like H two O, and I like I like this recent one too. So there's a lot to like. It keeps you coming back for more. Yeah. I got to go get a, a dip in the fountain of youth of the Halloween franchise because they're always willing to try crazy things. You got to give them credit for that. So Sure. Uh, so let's wrap this up. I think I know you and I are very excited for this nightcap question. So let's get right to it. Good music. Yeah. I like stuff that sets a good tone. That bitch you played for me before we got on from Carpenter's new album. What'd you call it? The oh, Ghost. That, that's that uh, Lost Themes. Uh, I think it's called Weeping Ghost. Lost so Themes good. 3 coming out in January. Yeah, I love that he's back in that music. Because making films, one love. Being a musician and growing up in a musician household, uh, second love. So I'm glad that he's still with his son. Like, that's so awesome that he's doing that, like, right now. Mm-hmm. Because if he was making a movie, it'd be terrible, right? Now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, yeah, this has been a great, long, uh, in-depth episode on Halloween too. <laughs> I told you about this podcast in Gorley and Rust. Uh, in, with Gorley and Rust, and man, they just go on and on within these episodes. And they go on crazy tangents. But when you really break some of these films down, there's a lot to kind of talk about, like, thematically. That's why horror's so good, though. You can do that with that genre. We haven't seemed to run out of content any of the weeks lately. Oh, no, we? no way. Yeah. No. So this nightcap's going to be awesome. So we're going to wrap up this spooky time, and next we're going to be getting into a totally different genre. Mm-hmm. But Halloween 2 was originally supposed to take place. An original idea that they flirted with early on was in an apartment complex, mm-hmm. which, again, location in a slasher is the number one most important thing. What a great location to have a slasher film. So my question to you, Matt, is pitch me on Halloween 2 in the apartment complex. You want me to go first? Yeah, go first. Out the window, on the floor, or on the grass, Michael's only concern is getting away. As he escapes into the evening, it's still in the middle of Halloween. Obviously, night doesn't matter in Haddonfield, and people trick-or-treat till 3 a.m. in the morning, ask mom about that, and then play Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yep. As he's sneaking around through the neighborhood, he happens upon a boy with his two friends in a clown costume. And they're about to go trick-or-treating, and about that time happens, a truck stops, and five teenagers jump out, and roll that kid in the Halloween in the clown costume and steal his candy mm. and head off to an apartment complex. Michael, who is now on high alert and the town is informed of all of the things that he's committed, gets back in Loomis's vehicle and drives to that apartment complex to find those five kids that did that kid wrong. Nice. About the time he gets there in that communal meeting room that every apartment complex have, there's a rager going on. <laughs> Plenty of, you know. Is Ben Tramer there? Sure. <laughs> Let's put Ben Tramer there. Okay. 
Yeah, actually, we can have Ben Chambers there. Maybe he's actually. You know what? If you, re- I hadn't thought about that. He's Maybe the one ben that Chambers the candy. Sure. Oh, let's nice. do it. Okay. Even better. Thank you. That's good. You just took this and elevated it from a nine to a ten. There you go. He is able to take cover in plain sight because it's a Halloween costume and it's a masquerade. You know, wear costume party. Oh, that's good. And so from that point, he's going after each one of those five kids that did that little kid dirt. I mean, they rolled him like punched his lights out and bloody lip and the whole nine, like fuck that kid up. Yeah. Stole his candy. And so then in a way that's reminiscent to who he is, because I think Jason, sorry, Michael's whole crux, Mm -hmm. if I could sum it up in one word is jealousy. Mm. He's jealous. Yeah. He's jealous of Tommy and Lori. He's jealous of the Halloween. He never got to have. Exactly. So because they stole it from that kid, He's going to do right by that kid and in some weird sort of protector way goes after the five people that rolled him. Loomis is informed that his car has shown up at this apartment complex, which sends him there. I don't even give a damn about Laurie Strode at this point. She's not even in the film. Yeah, yeah, this version, probably not. Shows up with maybe Anne's, um, Annie's dad, the cop, Mm -hmm. who's the one that's been introduced that we care about. Yeah. And then it's the pursuit of Michael in the apartment complex as he's doing an unwitting candy stealer, terrible teen in some state of undress after another, after another, until we get the showdown between Loomis and Michael that this movie doesn't give us. We didn't talk about it, but I don't want to see blinded Michael slashing in the air with a, that's stupid. Yeah. Lame. I want to see mono mono Van Helsing versus Dracula Loomis versus Michael in an apartment complex. I don't care what the setting is. It can be by a pool. It can be, I don't care where Ooh, it is. Nice. But that's where I want this to finally end up. Ooh, cool. That's my film. Oh, I want to see that movie. Let's hear yours. Who man. I love that you gave me Ben Tramer too. Yeah, that that for that, sure. That would fit. Damn right. The Ben Tramer story that just like we tell that movie and then the version that exists in this universe. Yeah. I love this idea about a an apartment building. Um, so I'm gonna take Halloween two. I'm not gonna do the bookended thing that your version does and that this film does. I'm gonna get take some time to get away from it. I want Laurie Strode back, but what does her character so good is when time has kind of taken fold and you get to kind of see the repercussions of what that night has done for her. Uh, obviously, you can't live in Haddonfield anymore. Like after going through an event, you get out of that town. Sure. So I don't know, maybe she's in Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> okay. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, living in, in this apartment. But like, I think she's just so sh- like strung out by this event. Like I, I can't even see her like going to like a four year college. Like I, I see Lori working at some shit dive bar mm. night after night, getting mm. hit on. Mm. Uh, she's hard drinking mm. cause she's so traumatized by what had happened. Yeah. And here we go. It's the one year anniversary of Halloween. This date I've been dreading and exciting incident. Good. So far, so good. And I think so. I think kind of like yours, I kind of want like this rager party in an apartment building with costumes and the whatnot. And here comes Michael, who's been on the lam since he left the ground. Like no one knows where he's been this entire time. He wasn't caught. It's been a big mystery across the nation. And he shows up here on this night again, kind of getting back to, they don't need to be related, but it's that infatuation. I'm going to find you. I will find you. And what are you going to do when I find you? Love it. And so maybe Loomis is in my version or maybe not. Maybe I want to see the confrontation between Lori and Michael in the apartment at the pool, but 
I think the apartment brings a lot of uh, setting possibilities that the hospital offers. Dark, long corridors, yeah. uh, sparsely lit hallways, in and out of apartment uh, rooms as people are trying to get it on or, or to mm-hmm. get drunk and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a security desk. I mean, you get that element in this film. Sure. The guy at the secure, at the, at the front. Yep. Uh, a boiler room or a park. Uh, I want a parking garage at mine, too. Oh, yeah. That'd be a fun, a fun sequence as mm-hmm. well. So, But I just want to Lori that you wouldn't quite expect one year after this uh, reacting how one might going through a traumatic event like that. Like I'm going to turn to alcohol. I'm going to try and, you know, erase this from my memory. But as that date comes, it's unavoidable and it's unavoidable when the thing that shows up, shows up. <laughs> so, That's great. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I want to see both of these movies. Those sound like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then the cult of thorns shows up, and it's the druids. No, no, we stopped there. Sammy, <laughs> that's Halloween two from nineteen eighty one. Let us know what how you'd like to see Halloween two. Rice Productions at gmail or any of the social media platforms. Give us your pitch. Yeah, give us your pitch. Uh, it's been yeah a busy two weeks for Matt and I. I mean, we haven't recorded an episode here in a while, so um, in person. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been in a very different kind of headspace, but still committed to to doing the show. So this was, again, on Halloween. Halloween, episode released on Halloween. Halloween 2. Serendipitous. Very serendipitous. So we're going to switch it up. We're going to do a total 180 starting next week. Getting a little more ser- It is. Musicals. Yeah. Theoretically, uh, Oscar-y season and whatnot um so we get into a little more of a autori space around this time but one of the genres we have been talking about a lot lately has been the mob genre so the cask is called turf war nice we're kicking it off next week with the first entry in that mob space which is going to be carlito's way carlito's way brian de palma is going to join the three timers club now (laughs) And we haven't even done a his cask yet. There may not be nothing left. No, there is. We We can do, we can do obsession, body double and dress to kill. Okay. We got that. Oh, and sisters. Four. There you go. Mm -hmm. No, we and Scarface. Mission impossible. And the untouchables. Look at that. We could do two belt, the De Palma cast. Just rattling them off. But uh, yeah, Carlitos, wait, man, I have not seen this movie since I was, my friend Josh loved this thing and I watched it with him and I I was 13. The last time I saw it. Yeah. So it's been a while. Sweet. I did like it the first time I saw it, so I'm excited to revisit this, revisit De Palma. Is this the first time we're talking about El Pacino? Did we do Scent of a Woman? Nope. Got it, Mike. We, we haven't done Godfather or Dog Day after. Yep, this is the first Pacino, so this is going to be this is going to be fun. Shocker. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. And well, then, have we done De Niro yet either? Nope. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this is going to be a big cask for us. Yep. Yeah, what's coming up? Part uh, film two in this cask is amazing. And the directors we're covering in film three, we haven't covered either, and they're big time. So uh, we got that. You got that look forward to. And we've already plotted out the rest of the year, and it's it's going to be fun. Yeah, we've got six more entries before the year finishes and guaranteed to be home runs. That's going to be a blast. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. I, the, the EMT gig did not work out for us here at Haddonfield, so we'll have to revisit this next year. And maybe we'll just go take a nice little camping weekend uh, to Higgins Haven. And, man, hopefully they've figured out that Jason situation over there in Crystal Lake, and we can just have a nice, just kind of fun time. I'm going to launch a new business, and we're going to install hot tubs because I'm pretty sure that I can manage not to scald my people in them. Okay, excellent. We'll see you all next week. Happy Halloween, everybody. Have a great week, and we will see you in the dark.
Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Halloween 2 is property of Universal Pictures and the Dino De Laurentiis Corporation, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I shot him six times. What? I shot him six times. I, I shot him in the heart. That can't have gotten very far. Come on. I shot him six times. Yeah. This guy, this man, he's not human. <laughs>